This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Social media giants like Facebook, Google, and Twitter are rewriting the rules. Specifically, their rules on hate, violence, and propaganda on their sites sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The changes are sparking conversations on who governs and what can and can't be said online during global conflicts. So what are social media giants looking to change? Who should be involved in that decision-making process? And how might those changes affect your own experience with those platforms? Joining us now to discuss is Will Oremus. He's a technology news analysis writer for The Washington Post. Welcome back, Will. Thanks for having me. So your headline for this piece, it states that social media wasn't ready for this war. What does that mean? Where did they go wrong? Well, you know, social media platforms were built around uh, an idealistic vision of how they would operate in the world. They would be a platform for everybody. They would be stateless, regardless of where you were. Your experience of them would be the same. Uh, they would they would back uh, people's right to say whatever they wanted, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, they would not take sides in political disputes. Uh, they would, you know, they would they would let people uh, speak on on all sides of an issue and let the user sort it out. Those ideals have been challenged for years by many events in the U.S. and abroad, but the war in Ukraine is uh, challenging them in, in sort of newly obvious and striking ways. So tell us more, how are companies trying to change this? And which ones right. are acting against the initial policies they had in place? Right. So there's it, most of the big social media platforms, if you think about Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, even TikTok, they have a set of rules that applies for pretty much the whole world um, to everybody equally. Uh, and so in theory, uh, someone posting uh, factually inaccurate information about, uh, you know, say, a Ukrainian war hero, there was this sort of myth of the ghost of Kiev, which was a, an ace fighter pilot on the Ukrainian side who was shooting down Russians. Probably not true, right? In theory, under their rules, that should be treated the same as pro-Russian disinformation, such as the idea that Russian, Russia didn't really bomb a maternity hospital. Um, right. in, in fact, um, enforcing that has struck Facebook, for instance, as pretty pretty wrong. I mean, they, they don't want to be banning Ukrainians um, from posting feel-good stories about their resistance to Russia in this, with the same zeal that they're trying to take down. Russian disinfo operations that justify the war. It would feel kind of cruel, right? So, so another policy that Facebook had was you can't call for, for violence, for real-world violence against somebody. Well, Ukrainians are understandably posting things about how they hope that the Russians will be driven out of the country, maybe even that they hope Putin would be killed or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Does Facebook enforce its policies against them? And it decided, uh, no, we won't do that for now. We'll, we'll let Ukrainians say something like death to the Russian invaders that normally wouldn't be allowed. And, and some of the other specifics you list here in your, your story, you talk about Google barring ads in Russia and um, taking down YouTube videos. Yeah, so YouTube came out and said that any video that tries to minimize what Russia is doing in Ukraine, which, by the way, is pretty much all the all the information that's coming out of Russia is minimizing what they're doing in Ukraine, mm-hmm. that we will take down those videos. We won't allow them on our platform. We won't allow you to trivialize the invasion, um, you know, to, to say that it's just a special military operation or that sort of thing. Um, they to, to justify that policy, uh, they turned to a rule they actually made a few 
years ago, largely in response to Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist who was denying the Sandy Hook massacre, the, the horrible school shooting. Um, they had come up with a policy that said you can't deny violent events. So they're they're repurposing that policy to Russian propaganda to say that Russian Russian state media outlets, for instance, or other pro-Russian sources can't minimize what's going on in Ukraine. So the the stance that you were you were talking about a, a moment ago have have all these companies sort of said exactly why they're taking this this stand? Have they all been this explicit? No, I mean they've they've really they've they've sought to graft their new policies for for war for Russia Russia and Ukraine onto these existing rule books in sometimes awkward ways. Uh, another example is that on Facebook you can't praise Nazis uh, for understandable reasons. That's considered hate speech. Uh, they struggled with well, what about there's a, a battalion, a militia of fighters uh, on the Ukrainian side who have uh, neo-Nazi affiliation. It's called the Azov Battalion. Can Ukrainians say, you know, go Azov Battalion, you know, fight the, you know, fight off the Russians? You know, are they allowed to say that yeah. when these neo Nazis are, are, you know, potentially defending their lives? Again, Facebook decided yes, they can say that, but it's not clear, uh, you know, on what grounds uh, that is or, or where else it might apply. And I, so I talked, I spoke with some human rights advocates who are asking, well, what about, you know, why is it that when Palestinians um, you know, praise Hamas, uh, for instance, that gets taken down, but Ukrainians are allowed to praise uh, the Azov Battalion. You know, where's the consistency here? And so I think the, the platforms are really being challenged to uh, these short-term actions they're taking in Ukraine. Now, how do you go back and square that with the rest of the policies you have around the world? There are some concerns, though, about organizations reacting in this way and adjusting their policies um to current events. Talk more about what uh, the CEO of uh, tech policy consulting Anchor Change had to say. Yeah, so Katie Howarbath was a, was an executive at Facebook. She ran their elect, their efforts to protect the integrity of elections, or that's what they called it. I mean, you might say their efforts to avoid compromising the integrity right. of elections. Um, she ran those efforts for several years. Uh, she's now a consultant for tech companies on just these sorts of policy questions. She said she's concerned that they're kind of making things up as they go along. They need to step back and take a longer-term view and come up with a systematic way of thinking about geopolitical conflicts and admit that this you know this is one class of of real-world situations in which having one universal rule book for all users of a social media platform around the world just doesn't work. But think about the, the precedents they're setting and how this could come back to haunt them. So an example there is that um, when Facebook uh, Facebook didn't announce the changes to its policies that would allow for calls to, uh, of violence against Russians, um, it, it leaked to the media organization Reuters that they were telling their they were secretly telling their content moderators. All right, let's just not enforce this rule for a while against mm -hmm. Ukrainians. It leaked, and it leaked in a misleading way that made it seem like Facebook was going to allow any users around the world to say death to Russians. Well, that struck a lot of people as wrong, and it ended up being Vladimir Putin's excuse, or, or Roscom, the, the Russian censorship agency, it ended up being their excuse to label Meta as a, an organization that's engaging in extremist activity, as an anti-Russian organization, and it enabled them to ban, Meta being the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, this 
is the excuse they used to ban Facebook and Instagram from Russia. They said, look, they're obviously pro-Russian. They, they're allowing people to wish violence on Russians, so we're going to kick them out of the country. Now, of course, the effect of that in Russia is to eliminate another source of, of independent media, another source of, of outside information that could tell the Russians the truth about what's going on in Ukraine, because uh, you know Russia itself, Russian state media, is really trying to keep a lid on on what's actually happening on the ground there. So in summary, then, Will, is there a general framework you think that, that social media platforms can follow during times of geopolitical conflict? Well, there's two ways they could do this. You know, in the past, social media platforms have come up with sort of a policy framework or toolkit for special circumstances. So the, the first big example was after the 2016 elections, both in the United States and Brexit in, in the UK, um, Facebook came up with a, a, a whole set of tools for dealing with elections. And so they started um, you know, taking special enforcement against misinformation about how to vote in democratic elections. Um, it, you know, this, a lot of this came to a head with uh, their ban of Donald Trump uh, following the, the 2020 election um, and the January 6th insurrection in the United States on the Capitol. Um, so you know, they could make a set of policies like that for wartime. Um, they also, you know, they had uh, COVID-19. Also, they came up with new, new sets of policies to deal with misinformation around vaccines. They could do that for war. Uh, another uh, track that I think they're unlikely to take, but mm-hmm. you, maybe you could argue they should, is just to admit that they, they are not and never will be and never have been the sort of neutral platforms for all speech that they like to portray themselves as. I mean, they, they, have, they have policies that they want to be able to apply in a in an automated way to everybody equally, and that results in things like in the United States, they uh, have what's called race-blind policies. They, they won't treat uh, racism against black people any differently than they would treat racism against white people. They see those as equivalent. They don't like to to you know adjudicate context and, and apply sort of nuanced judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, they could step back and say, you know what, we actually are more like a media organization than a neutral platform. We're not like a phone carrier. We're not a place for all speech, and we will start, you know, making value judgments about what types of stuff we think is right and wrong to host on our platform. Again, I think that's unlikely in the domestic context, but that would be another way but to, to treat this. That would be an interesting solution. Thank you for breaking that down. Will Aremus is a technology news analysis writer for The Washington Post. Great to have you on, Will. Yeah, thanks very much. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.